thank you, ladies. You know, there's some people, if they can't do it, they say, why try? There's other people who say, we may not be able to do it, but let's, in trying, let's see how far we get. And it's, I think it's a wonderful thing to try to outlove the Lord. You know he's going to win, but how much, how much more love do we, uh, are we able to show because we made the attempt? If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to the first book of Samuel, chapter 14. The first book of Samuel, chapter 14. I have felt on my heart several months now, probably back to at least June, maybe before that even, but another series, and, and I hope you, everyone who tells, tells me they like them, nobody's told me they don't like them, so if you don't like them, you should tell me, because so long as I keep getting good feedback, um, when I feel the Lord leads them, uh, makes it easier, I guess, maybe for me to, to preach them, I, I suppose, and so anyhow, and of course we try to mind the Lord, but I have been feeling uh, a series on my heart for some time. On lessons from the life of Jonathan. Jonathan. Now, Jonathan's not a not a person we don't know. We all know Jonathan. Um, Jonathan is our is a, is of course a friend of David and a son of King Saul. But I wonder how. I wonder how his life could help us live ours. And I've been looking at that, studying that out, and uh, I found that, that there's much in, in Jonathan's life demonstrates to us um, how we ought to live, how we should conduct ourselves. And even though his father takes, takes the wrong path and the wrong road, we always find Jonathan faithful. Always find him faithful. And uh, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found faithful. We're going to be reading the first 23 verses in, uh, in this, uh, of this chapter. And so if you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. But if that's too much for you, um, you're welcome to remain seated. 1 Samuel chapter 14, to give us a setting, Philistines and Israel's been at war, and Saul has been weary of waiting. They've, he's supposed to tarry until Samuel comes to offer the sacrifice. Saul gets in a hurry. And he offers to sacrifice himself. And they had, at this point, about 3,000 warriors. But as you'll read in this passage, they get down to 600. 
People have left. People are discouraged. And things aren't looking great. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeth, under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, and the people that were there with him were about 600 men. And Ahiah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest, and Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over unto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the other was Sina. Disclaimer here, any pronunciation is all made up. <laughs> the forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, and the other southward over Gibeah. And Jonathan said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. There is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or few. And the armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, to, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. And if they say unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and this shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of their holes where they have hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto the armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. And the first slaughter which Jonathan and the armor bearer made was about 20 men within, as it were, half an acre of land, which is a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was a trembling in the host, in the field, and among the people, the garrison, and the spoilers, and they trembled, and the earth quaked, and it was a great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and there went on beating down one another. Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now, and see who is gone from us. And they numbered, and behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God. For the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priest, that the noise was... In the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said to the priest, Withdraw thine hand. And Saul said, And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were 
with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country around about. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel, which had hid themselves in the Mount Ephraim, when they heard the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth-Avon. Father, as we begin this new series, I ask that you would bless it, use it for your glory, and use it to help us to walk after the way of faithfulness. Be with us as we endeavor to rightly divide the word of truth. Be glorified, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you who your heroes are in the Bible, I'm sure we'd get a variety of answers. Some like David. They love his warrior-like spirit. They like perhaps his poetry, his songs. Others may point to Paul or Maybe some others would point to um, Deborah or Esther. We all kind of have these individuals that, that kind of, that just, they just get our attention. They're people that, that stick out as, as the number one. And certainly we like that. In fact, our culture has conditioned us to want to be the best and to be in the first place and, and to have the first chair. I remember seeing a t-shirt some time ago and on it it said, second place is the first loser. And I really feel like that sums up our culture's views. That if you're not number one, if you're not the top, if you're not the best then you're not good enough. You have to be in first place. But how many of us are really number one? I mean, when you really think about it, there are very few of us, in fact, probably none of us, can really say we're number one at just about anything. And even those that, that obtain to, to the greatest and highest and loftiest positions, often they aren't even number one. If I were to ask you who was the greatest baseball player of all time, we'd have a debate. If I asked you who was the greatest basketball player of all time, there'd be debate. And some of you are shaking your heads, but... There is a debate. <laughs> the question that we have is, is, is really who holds number one? How about who's the boss? Who's in charge? Take our church, for instance. Who, who's, in, who's the boss of our church? I'm the pastor, but I'm not the boss. Every month I have to give an account to our board. Every year I have to give an account to you as the members. And you can even call me an account quicker than that if you want to. More frequently than that if you want to. I'm not in charge. I answer to the board. I answer to the membership. Well, is the board in charge? Well, there's five of us. And there's not any one of us that gets our way all the time. And that's a good thing. 
But even the, even the board, they're answerable to the membership. We don't like what they're doing, they're out. Who's in charge around here? And even if we found one person that we would point to, really, they're answerable to Christ. One of these days, we're going to have to give an account for how uh, the decisions that we made concerning our church. I think that scares some people, but it shouldn't scare us. If we've acted the way that we ought to act, if we've had the right motives, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a good thing. I, in fact, if I'm going to have anyone review me, I, I want it to be Christ. I know he judged us fairly. There's no one in charge around here as, as one person. No one's the boss. You, Brother Gary owns his own business. But is he in charge? Only so far. I mean, he's got to answer to the government on a lot of things. And he might not want to do it that way, but OSHA says, or the insurance board, or whoever it is, says you have to do it this way. So is he in charge? Who's number one? Even our president is answerable to the people and answerable to Congress. And that's why we hear so much about impeachment is because it is the, he is answerable to Congress. Whether we think he should or shouldn't be isn't really the point this morning. The point is even the highest position of our land, he's answerable to someone else. There's no one who's really number one. And when I see Jonathan and I see John the Baptist and others of, of the Bible, Barnabas and, and Silas and different ones who, it seems like they occupy the number two chair. And I see them and I think, you know, really, these guys that are, that are in second place, that maybe live in the shadow of someone greater, maybe we should spend a little more time studying them. Because we often live in the shadow of someone greater. Maybe we should see a little bit. And, and you know, some of, them, some of them that God helped them to become, the, to become number ones in their own right. Joshua was second to Moses and, and eventually took on the leadership. Elisha was, was second to Elijah, but eventually took on the mantle of, of leadership. Samuel was second to, to Eli. And so on. You can go down through the list or, uh, uh, and different ones that, that were in the shadow, but eventually God raised them up to be number one. And then you find that there's those that, that were in second place and they, all they wanted was to be number one. Take Gehazi. Who, because he wanted wealth and he wanted the attention, you find him working and conniving and and taking from Naaman the, what he had offered and, and Elijah had sent away. You find him working in other afterwards, after he has leprosy, he's still trying to work and maneuver and trying to gain favor with the king, anybody, just so that he can get the attention. Gehazi really has a problem not being satisfied with where he's at. And we could do a whole series on Gehazi. Starts so well. Risen to number two, but he disappoints. Disappoints. And then there's men. 
like John the Baptist and Barnabas and Jonathan, who never ever rise to number one. They never, they never take the first place, the first chair. They never become the guy. They're always in the shadow of someone else. And yet, each one of them has an incredible ministry and an incredible story. Jonathan is number two. He's second to the king, his dad, Saul. He knows that he is, that he is going to be number two until he's king. Except for shortly after the events that we're studying about, God is going to take the kingdom away from Saul and give it to David. And Jonathan recognizes this. In fact, in, in 1 Samuel 23 and verse 17, he tells David that he recognizes that David is going to be king and he'll be in second place. Jonathan's okay with it. Jonathan has accepted his role as a lifelong number two. Now maybe this morning you think you're number three or four or seven or two thousand. But I think that the principles still remain, regardless of where we find ourselves in the hierarchy of things. I think the principles still help us to know how we are supposed to conduct ourselves when we're not in the first chair. In our passage this morning, we've read of the situation. They're at war. They started with 3,000 men. They're down to 600. Things aren't going so well. They've take, lots of the men have deserted is what's happened. They've deserted. Things are not going well. King Saul is not doing well spiritually at all. He's begun his fall. It hasn't completed yet. It, it's going to get worse. And the people have they've recognized that, that King Saul really isn't, well, he's just not what he used to be. People are, people are leaving. Jonathan wakes up one morning and he sees the situation. He says to his armor bearer, let's go fight. Let's go pick a fight. I love this. I think the first thing we should notice is the spirit of Jonathan, the spirit of one who is in second place. He gets up this morning and he says to his armor bearer, he says, you know what? He says, I feel like we ought to go do something for God. Just you and me. And the armor bearer, and, and if maybe the, uh, this might help you, think squire. He's, he's, a, he's a knight in training. He's got a weapon. He might have his own shield. It's, it's, it, when they say armor bearer, it doesn't mean this guy just wears Jonathan's armor for him. This is, this is his squire. He says, Come on, let's go. We're gonna, and, and the squire says, whatever you want to do, let's do it. I love this guy. I just love this guy. You're the boss. Whatever you want, Jonathan, you're, you're the boss. I don't know, he's probably a kid. I kind of imagine he's probably 
15, 16 years old, maybe, maybe 17. He's a, young, he's a young man. He's idealistic. Jonathan says, all right, let's go. We're going we're gonna to do something great for God today. Here's the situation. They've got hardly any men. There's 600 of them. They don't have any weapons, hardly. We find in the previous chapter that, that Saul and, and Jonathan are the only ones to have either a sword or a spear. The Philistines have controlled the iron working. There's no metal weaponry found in Israel except for one, uh, two guys, Saul and Jonathan, having a spear and a sword between them. I don't know what this armor bearer is fighting with. I don't know if he's throwing rocks. I don't know if he's got a slingshot. I, I don't know if he's got just a big stick he's in club. He's going to knock him in the head. I don't know what he's got. The Bible doesn't tell us. They don't have any advantages. In fact, they get down to, to, where, uh, to where the garrison is, and, and they've built this garrison in a smart place. The Philistines are not dumb. They have, they've built it with two sharp rocks on either side. They're steep. They're, they're difficult. And do you know what? Jonathan doesn't ask his dad for permission. Why? Is, is it, is, should we take from this that we should just do what we want and we're in second place? No. See, Jonathan had an order from the king to take out the Philistines whenever he had an opportunity to. So he's doing what he's supposed to do, but he also knows that what he's doing, there's a lot of obstacles, there's a lot of hindrances, there's a, it seems impossible, and his dad's going to try to talk him out of it. All of you dads are, are in agreement. We wouldn't let our boy go into this situation. We don't want to send our boys into war at all if we can avoid it. But here he's, they're going to, his plan is, it, is insane. He's got rocks to deal with. He's got inferior weaponry, probably inferior armor. It's two of them versus I don't even know how many Philistines. This is crazy. And do you know what happens for most of us when we're in that situation? We say, look at the hindrances. Look at the obstacles. Look at all the things that are in our way. This must not be God's will. And we walk away from it. The question that... that that separates us. The way that we answer this question separates uh, the, those that nor, uh, the rest of us from the Jonathans. And it's this. Do we see the obstacles or we, do we see the possibilities? Do we see all the things that can go wrong or do we see all the things that could go right? Do we see all the, the disasters and, 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 and the horrific outcomes? Or do we see victory. Here, I love what Jonathan says. He says this to his armor bearer. <coughs> he says, armor bearer, I want to tell you something. He says, God is able to give victory with few or with many. 
You know, I think we should memorize this verse. This isn't in the, in the list of verses that, that you tell young people to memorize, but I, I think that we ought to memorize this verse. God is able to give us victory, whether there's just a few of us or whether there's a lot of us. And there's just two of us. There's just two of us out here wanting to do what God wants us to do. There's just two of us that here that we, and, I, and obviously everything's stacked against us. The, the whole world's against us. They've got, the, they've got the manpower. They've got the weaponry. They've got the defensive position. But we have God. Hallelujah. Well, I tell you what, that ought to do something for us if we're just a little bit discouraged with the direction this world's going. And it seems like there's more with the world than there is with God. But I want you to know that when God's on our side, it doesn't matter if there's few or many. (laughs) I love it. I absolutely love Jonathan's spirit here. Is Jonathan... Is Jonathan going to do something great for God because there's, it's easy? No. If it's easy, it's not great. If it's cheap, it's not wonderful. The things that you value, the things that you treasure are costly. I don't necessarily mean by human dollars and cents. It's not what I necessarily mean. For most of us, if we're given something or if we've worked for it, we treasure the thing we've worked for. For the vast majority of us. There are some people who really treasure gifts, and and I'm not minimizing that this morning. But for the most part, the thing that you work for, the thing that you earned, that is the thing that you treasure the most. How many here loved high school? For those of you that are listening, I have one or two. How many felt better if you went to college? How many of you preferred college? A lot more hands. You paid for it. You worked for it. You had a bill to pay. And you knew it cost you something. And probably you're studying the things you preferred anyways but you valued the thing that you put the more energy and effort into. Do you know what? I'm afraid we want victories at bargain prices. We want revival at bargain prices. We want God to come in our services at bargain prices. We're looking at the clearance rack to see what God has put on clearance. We want the victories. We want, we want people to, to come to our church that, that are going to be bargain people. They're, you know, hopefully they they're already come saved and sanctified from another good church. We don't want anybody that we've got to really work and deal with and, and disciple and help along the way. I mean, that would be costly. I'm getting preaching a little close now. I, I know I am. But this is, where, this is where we have gotten comfortable. And wonderful thank God for clearance prices at, at Walmart or, or wherever you like to shop. 
But there can be no spiritual victories at bargain prices. It's going to be costly. And Jonathan counts the cost and he embraces it because he believes with all of his heart that God is able to give victory where others see defeat. I want to ask you, if you knew you could not fail, that God would not allow you to fail, what would you attempt? If you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do differently? And then I want to ask you this. Is your God capable of failing? Is your God capable of failing? If he's not, then why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you doing it? That thing that came to your mind that you would do if you knew you couldn't fail. Why aren't you doing it if you don't believe God can fail? That's the spirit of Jonathan. Jonathan says, you know what? There's more with them than be with us. They got the technology. They got the position. They got everything going for them. But God is on our side and we can't fail. I want that spirit, Brother Rocky. I do. I want that spirit. It says it doesn't matter that, that we don't have the finances. It doesn't matter we don't have the resources. It doesn't matter that, that we don't have the brains or the wisdom or whatever it is that Satan tells us why we can't and why the world tells us we can't and maybe even good godly Christians tell us that we can't. And yet, we know within our hearts that God can. I want that faith. I want that spirit of Jonathan. And I want that spirit of that armor bearer that says, I don't know what's going on, but I just want to be a part of it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Man, that clock's going too fast. I'm still on point one. You notice the spirit, now I want you to see a strategy. He says, all right, armor bearer, he says, here's, here's the deal. We're going, to, we're going to do the opposite of what's, what they teach you in war school. We're going to make ourselves plain and discoverable to the enemy. No sneaking up. What? <laughs> what? We, uh, we're going we're gonna, uh, we're gonna to go right out there and we're going to say, Hey, Philistines, you uncircumcised pigs, we're out here. I, I don't know. It's probably not too far from what he said. <laughs> it really is. He's, he said, We're going to come out there and we're going to be discoverable to them. And you know what? If they say, You just hold on, we're coming to get you, then we're just going to hold still. We're just going to stand still. But if they say, come on up here, we're going to show you something. We're going to teach you a lesson. We'll know God's for us. And I read this and I say, what is wrong with you, Jonathan? I'm not a general. 
I'm not a soldier. I've never been to war. But here's what I know. The defensive position is the place you want to be. You want to be in the trench and you want the other guys running at you with you having the machine guns. You want to be on the hill and they're charging up the hill and you're shooting down the hill. That's why Pickett's charge didn't work. Because he is charging up the hill. He was in the... And the uh, Union was up on the hill. They were in fortified positions. We've been to Gettysburg. We've seen it. And we've seen where Pickett's charge was. It was a wide open field. And Pickett's charge was doomed. It was a foolish military tactic. Even Lee would say so himself. He said, I should never have done that. In his pride, in so many victories, he knew that if he could win that, if he could get the charge and he could could separate the, the Union Army, that they would easily win, and they would have. But you don't attack a fortified position if you can avoid it. All the advantages is to the one playing defense in war. They've got the garrison. They've got these sharp rocks. They've got everything going for them. And Jonathan says, if they say we want to keep it, all the advantages, then we know we go. Guys, this doesn't make sense. This is bad strategy. This is not what uh, uh, the art of war by Xing Zhu, or however you say his name, how that, how, what he would teach us to do. This is not military strategy. This is not good, sound military strategy. What is going on here? It's this. Jonathan wants God to get the victory. And he wants, and, and this is important, he wants to get on board with what God's doing, not asking God to get on board with what he's doing. And we often make this mistake. We say, we want this. We're going to do this ministry. We're going to start doing this. And we do and we do and we do and it fails. And we're saying, God, why didn't you bless? We were trying to do something for you. We're asking him to get on our side. But what Jonathan is teaching us is he says, the strategy isn't to ask God to join our side. The strategy is to say, Lord, help us to get on your side. What are you doing? What do you want to do? What kind of ministry do you, should we get it plugged into? What, 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 what do you want to accomplish? What, you, how are we going to have revival? How are we going to do what you want to do? God, I want to get on your side, not ask you to bless what I'm doing, but for me to get it at doing what you're blessing. That's a big change. And this is Jonathan's message to us in his strategy, he says, we don't have to do what makes sense in the human. We have to do what God's already doing. Get excited about what God's doing. And they, the Philistines said, come on up, we'll show you a thing. We'll teach you a lesson. They're not worried. They're not, this is, this is perfect for them. So does Jonathan and the armor bearer take the trail up? Nope. They're not going to take the easy path. They're not going to take the obvious way. They're going to climb up one of the rocks. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? 
All they've got to do is throw rocks at you. All they've got to do is, is pour boiling oil on top of you. I mean, there's lots of things you can do to take care of guys who are climbing up the sides of your rocks. I don't know if the Philistines were excited about whipping two tired guys. I don't know if there was pride or maybe they were looking down the road seeing it and probably thought, man, those guys ran off. I don't know what the Philistines are thinking. I don't know what Jonathan's thinking. I'm just being honest with you. I don't know what Jonathan's thinking. Except this. I want to do it God's way. I want to do it God's way. I don't have to do it the way everyone thinks I ought to do it. I'm going to do it the way God wants us to do it. Does it make sense? Then I want you to see a success. We've looked at a spirit and a strategy, but I want to look at a success. They get up there, and they're in a closed, tight space. It says about a half an acre. I, uh, some commentators think that this isn't an exact measurement. It's just trying to be a metaphor for it's a tight space. It doesn't matter if it's exact measurement or if it's a metaphor for tight space. What it is is, is you've got Jonathan leading the way and the squire behind him, and they're going through and they're fighting, and Jonathan's killing people, and, and the people that survived Jonathan, the squire's coming behind, and he's slaying them. I mean, they're having a good old time. They get 20 of them killed. Two of them kill 20. I don't know about you, but I don't like those odds. I'd rather, if you're just picking sides, I'd rather be on the team with 20 than the people with two. But we keep forgetting that God is on their side. We keep forgetting that. Oh no, not with Jonathan and the armor bearer. We remember that. We forget it when it's us. It's easy to read it and say, oh good for Jonathan. Oh good for the armor bearer. Look at what God can do. And the Lord says, go fight. And you go, uh-uh. Go fight. Lord, do you see how big their army is? Do you see what their weapons are? Do you see their defenses? Do you see, Lord, do you see? Do you see? Folks, when do, we, when do you need to educate God? And don't we do it? We're sitting there educating God. <laughs> do you see? Do you know? Do you understand? How big is your God? I'm afraid not very big. Jonathan's this armor bearer. I wish I knew his name. I like this guy. They're slaying him. They're getting victories. They're doing great things. And you know what those Philistines, they, got, they still got more people, but they start to panic. And not only do they start to panic, but the Lord says, I'm going to really panic them. Let's have an earthquake. And he begins to shake the ground under. And let me tell you, when the earth starts shaking, that gets, that's not good. I mean, we, I like the ground. I don't like heights. I like the ground because it's supposed to be there when I want it there and I don't want it to move anywhere. But when it starts moving, I mean there's nothing to hold on to. Because whatever you're holding on to is moving. And they the ground begins to shake. God says, I'm going to really get these guys stirred up. 
And these guys, they've got their great weapons. They've got their great armor. They've got everything going for them. And do you know what they do? They're so scared, they start killing each other. And do you know what's going on back down in the camp? In the Israelites' camp? They're hearing the noise. The watchman sees. And, and, and man, the, the Philistines are melting. They're, they're, they're killing each other. What's going on? King Saul says, all right, well, let's find out who's missing. What is wrong with you, Saul? What do you mean, let's find out who's missing? Fight now, ask questions later. Well, they find out, well, Jonathan and, and his armor bearer aren't here. You're the dad. You don't know you're where your kid is. I mean, I get he's a gr full-grown adult, military general. I get all that. But you would think he'd know. He doesn't even know he's gone. He goes, my boy's out there. And then he calls the priest over. He says, all right, take the Ark of the Covenant. Let's ask God what we should do. God's given you victory and you don't know what to do. Do you know what? We can have an abundance of caution even while God's working. Have you heard people say, say things like, let's wait and see. Let's see if God is going to help them or not. Let's see if this thing lasts. And so you know what happens? It doesn't last because we didn't get in there and start fighting. We didn't start supporting. We didn't start contributing our time and our energy and our resources. And you know what? It dies off because we didn't, get, we didn't care to get involved because we have to take a wait-and-see approach. Well, I don't want to get behind something that's going to fail. I'd rather get behind something that was trying to do something for God and failed than to stand before the Lord and say, I did nothing for you, period. I, don't, I, I wish Jesus would have added the guy that, a, a fourth guy to the parable of the talents, the guy that invested the money and he lost it all trying. I would have, I'd really like to, because you know what I think? I think Jesus would have honored him too. Maybe not the same extent, but at least he is doing something. Not the guy that buries his talent, not the one that's saying, I'm waiting until the master comes back before I do anything. Now, this is just me, but I think God got a little impatient. I don't know if God gets impatient, but just seems to me like he did. He's long-suffering, but he's like, come on, Saul, what is wrong with you? And all of a sudden, the noise gets louder. The roar of the, of the battle gets hotter. And finally, Saul says, forget it, priest. We already know what we need to do. Let's go, Ben. And they charge into battle. And God gives a great victory. And those that had been discerning and those that have been cowards and, and hiding, you know what? They come out of their hidey holes and they say, we want to be part of a victory too. You know what? I don't want to be one of those cowards that want to show up and take credit at the last minute. I don't want to be them. I don't want to be the, a coward that, that's sitting around waiting for God to do something and waiting for God's people to do something before I show up. I want to be a Jonathan who says, God, show me what you want to do. I'll be the first one. And so here they come, and God gives them a great victory. 
Paul, because Jonathan had a heart that said, I want to get on board with what God's doing. I don't have to be in the first chair. I don't have to be the king. I don't have to be the top dog. All I have to do is mind God and see what God does. Do you know who gets the credit for the victory? It's all. But you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. If you're worried about credit, you don't belong even in the second chair. If you're worried about credit, folks, just hang it up. Because you know who really deserves the credit? It isn't Saul and it isn't Jonathan. It's God. If God's ever going to use us for anything, if he's going to help us to do anything for him, it's not going to be because of our smarts and our strength and our intelligence. Listen, Jonathan and that armor bearer should have lost. The Philistines were trained warriors. They had the training and the weapons and the position and they had everything that's going for them. But they had God and God gave the victory. And if we want the credit, we're in the wrong business. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. But oh, to be a Jonathan. Oh, to be a Jonathan. To look at all the obstacles and say, I don't see any obstacles. I just see opportunity for God to do something great. <laughs> I'm not talking about foolishness. I don't believe Jonathan was foolish. He wanted to know what God wanted him to do. But once he knew what God wanted him to do, he felt compelled to do it in spite of the evidence to the contrary. And that's faith. And you can look at all the evidence and you can weigh all the pros and cons and that's usually wise in a lot of things. But when God is on something, it does, you don't need to measure the pros and the cons. You don't have to measure the risk. You don't have to measure the probability of success and failure. All you need to know is God says go. I want to be a Jonathan this morning. I want Jonathan's spirit to be in my spirit. I want the strategy of if God's in it, I want to be with, doing what God's doing. And I'm going to trust God with it, whether it's successful or failure. Do you know what? Everyone else might look and call it a failure. But in the grand scheme of things, it's only God who gets to decide whether his servant is a success or a failure. Not even the servant gets to decide that. And sometimes we may feel like a failure, and, it, and it, we may feel, and others may feel like we failed, but don't you worry. Only God's the judge of success and failure. A lot of people say Noah was a failure. A lot of people say Jeremiah was a failure. You can pick and you can go throughout the scriptures and you can find God's men. Who, who people called a failure, but God said they're success because they did what I wanted them to do. <clears throat> Don't count success as being counted. Listen to the master's voice, for he alone can say to us, well done. He's the only one who has that authority. It's nice when people tell us that. It is. It's wonderful when people tell us that. But all that really matters the whole world can say to us, well done, but if the master doesn't, it's for naught. 
And all the world can call us a failure, but if God says that they are a success, it's all that matters. Oh, that God would give us a spirit of Jonathan in this day. Maybe in the shadow of someone else, maybe a number two, but God can still do great things if we're willing to get on board with what he wants to do. Let's stand together. Amen. Sister Peggy, would you dismiss us in prayer?